Apologies again for uh, Recording in progress. sounding like a frog. I um, have been lucky enough to uh, have another cold, uh, another bronchitis. So twice within a month. Um, <coughs> tonight, we're starting a new commentary on Chumash. This is the commentary of the Ibn Ezra. So, Ibn Ezra, obviously very different than the approach of the Ramban. More similar, perhaps, to the approach of the Rashban that we had before, uh, back a couple of years ago. But much more verbose than the Rashbam. The Rashbam is laconic in the extreme. The Ibn Ezra has a lot more. The Ibn Ezra is also very taken by astrology in a way that the Rashbam was not. He was also familiar with other areas of Judaism that the Rashbam didn't focus on, like poetry and songs. The Ibn Ezra was definitely very interested in both of those. We opened up the class a few years ago discussing the Ibn Ezra on the, the year of the Rashbam, opening up that year with the Rashbam's famous controversial comment about the definition of Ayer Vayvokir Mechad and the Ibn Ezra's epistle on Shabbos, Iger says Shabbos as a response. So I'm not going to do any of that now. <coughs> what I want to focus on tonight is understanding the Ibn Ezra, Qua the Ibn Ezra. So the Ibn Ezra, again, earlier than the Ramban, around the same time as the Rashbam, does provide us an introduction where he gives us an insight as to his approach that he wants to take with his commentary in a way that Rashi does not. right? And so therefore, it behooves us to study this introduction because it will be edifying, it will be very insightful in terms of understanding what his commentary will look or attempt to do throughout the rest of Chumash. So I'll start out at the beginning. The Ibn Ezra says that there are five basic approaches to commenting on, on Chumash. There are five basic approaches that he sees. The first approach is an approach that is adopted by a lot of people, he says. He says, if you would imagine you had a circle and you put a, a dot in the middle of the circle and the dot is the, is, is the truth, this approach is the circle, not the dot. That is, it's far from the truth. It's very verbose. It's a lot of extraneous information. It often brings in secular disciplines. And it's frankly not the truth. It doesn't provide the nugget of the truth. It's the circle around the dot in the middle. For the Ibn Ezra, <coughs> it's clear that he is attempting to respond to many different other commentaries that came before him, that he talks about freely. Throughout his running commentary on Chumash, he references a lot of 
commentaries of his own day and age, far more than, say, the Ibn Ezra, uh, than the Ramban, of course, far more than the Rashbam and Rashi. The Ibn Ezra is in a dialogue with other commentaries. And in, right in the very opening paragraphs of his introduction, where it's his listing the first of his five approaches to those commentaries, he does what we call today naming and shaming. He names and shames these commentaries who he feels are in the circle. They're not in the dot in the center. They're not at the truth. They're very verbose. The first is he says there's somebody named Rabbi Yitzchak. We don't know who Rabbi Yitzchak is. But he says Rabbi Yitzchak was so verbose that he literally wrote a book from Bereshit Bar Elikim until Shemayim. That is, he wrote a book on the days of creation, a commentary on the days of creation. And the book was meant to be a commentary on Chumash. But he couldn't stop himself. He wrote so much that he basically filled up a book's worth of information and didn't even get past Vayichul HaShemayim Varsuchot Tzavam. That's number one. Number two, <coughs> he says, So the, the, again, the one, and I'm saying this in English, but in Hebrew, the um, the uh, the wordplay of the Ibn Ezra, right, is gorgeous. He, everything is bringing down psukim, plays on psukim. You know, it's it's the 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 dexterity with Hebrew cannot be appreciated in English. So the this guy Kirabi Yitzchak Shekhiber Shnei Svarim Mibreshes Bara Advayichulu. The Eid like Kila Meirav Devar, right? Kila Vayichulu, it's the same thing. So he wasn't able to finish his commentary, right? He wrote, he started his commentary from God creating the world till he finished Vayichulu, but Rabbi Yitzchak wasn't able to finish Kila, right? Vayichulu, same word, because he he had so many things to say. Um, and then he goes after him again because he sits on the pasuk of Yehiar. When Hashem created the light, he started talking about Zoroastrianism, Chachmas, Nachrias, things that are nothing to do with Judaism. And he's very annoyed about this. And we'll have to see if throughout his commentary, the Ibn Ezra has a adherence to this. That is, how many times is he bringing in extraneous information from non-Jewish sources? Because here he's castigating Rabbi Yitzchak for doing so. And not just Rabbi Yitzchak. Rabbi Yitzchak, we don't know who that is. But he then goes after Rabbi Sajigon. Rabbi Sajigon, who acknowledges, is known as the Gaon Hagayla, right, the great one of the of the diaspora. Ooh, and he says about him, Rabbi Sajigon also brings in extraneous information from secular sciences, from secular disciplines. He says, Rabbi Sajigon is hechnes deus acheros ladas hamidas and eskores al pichach measfiros. Rabbi Sajigon is bringing in the sciences as they were known in those days to explain things for him. And it's not just Rabbi Sajigon. Rabbi Shmuel bar Chafni, Asaf Rach bechafanav. Right, he's making fun of the name. His name was Chafni, 
right? And he's saying that he's he's uh, uh, full of wind in his fists. Asaf Rach Bechafanov. He's full of wind in his fists. A word play on the word Chafni. Why is that? What did Rosh Mubar Chafni was one of the guidance? What did he do wrong? Says the Ibn Ezra, what he did wrong was on the Pasuk of Ayetzi Yaakov mi Shava, when Yaakov left, uh, you know, the house of of uh, Yitzchak and Rivka, he was running away from Esav, etc. The Pasuk of Ayetzi Yaakov mi Shava, Harana. And so over there, what the commentary of Rabbi Shul Marchafni did was it attempted to classify every time a prophet left town and what the benefits and detriments were of that leaving. And he's like, why in the world does this have to do with Yaakov leaving? Of what benefit are you giving me by by weighing down your commentary with all of this needless information? Which is very, very, very sharp, right? This is very strong language. But what it is showing you is the art in creating the commentary, the artistic flair in creating the commentary. It's not just you're writing a beat to write. You're writing with a purpose and a goal in mind, and you won't write needless or extraneous things. And he continues, and he says, later on over there in Vayetze, the Pasuk that says that Vayachalim, that <coughs> Yaakov had a had a dream, the angels going up and down the ladder. So over there, Shmuel Bar starts talking about dreams, and when when people have dreams and the science of dreams. I'm not sure if it's called dreamology, but that's basically what he starts talking about, and he's bringing in all these secular disciplines. So the Ibn Ezra is going crazy. He says, "If I want to read the secular, if I want to understand what the secular disciplines say." I'm going to go read the secular disciplines directly. Why well, don't I have to approach the secular disciplines through your commentary that I don't even understand? Now, maybe a tongue-in-cheek answer would be like the Ramah said to the Maharshal, right? And the famous Shuva back and forth between the Ramah and his older cousin, the Maharshal, where the Marshal is castigating the Ramah for studying philosophy, the Ramah says, I didn't study any philosophy. What are you talking about? Oh, you're talking about the fact that I quote Aristotle? That's not because I studied Aristotle. I've never studied Greek. I don't know how to read any of that stuff. No. I just studied the Rambam. And the Rambam in the Moritra Bukham quotes Aristotle. So that's what I assume Aristotle said, all these things that the Rambam says he said. So maybe there would be, would be a benefit for Shmuel quoting, or Sajigon quoting, all this extraneous information, because not necessarily is everybody comfortable to access that extraneous information in a non, in a non sort of kosher you know type of sense. So therefore, maybe Ibn Ezra should be more tolerant of the approach. But we'll leave the first derech over here. So again. The first day, according to the Ibn Ezra, is effectively those that have lots of things to say, but it's not really 
close to the dot, which, as we'll see, means pshat. It's uh, far away. It's in the circle. There's oftentimes an association of verbosity, sometimes a, a intermingling of extraneous information with the commentary. And this is the approach number one. Approach number two, says the Ibn Ezra. Approach number two is much more dangerous. Approach number two for the Ibn Ezra is the approach of those that attempt to distort the Torah. And this is the approach of the Karaites. The Ibn Ezra is very, very incensed by the Karaites. It seems clear that in his day and age, he was so aware of the Karaites. There must have been you know, communities around that were extant. <coughs> so he effectively accuses the Karaites of doing whatever they want. And he names the names, like Anan, you know, Anan ben, uh, ben Yamin, Ben Mashiach, Yeshua. These are from, from famous, famous Karite commentators. And he's saying, you know what's wrong with the Karite commentators? And we're going to see that Ibn Ezra is having a dialogue with these Karite commentators throughout his commentary. Says Ibn Ezra, what's wrong with these Karite commentaries? It's basically heresy. Says the Ibn Ezra, they force any interpretation of the text because the text is not comprehensive. The text never explicates any mitzvah with any sort of very fulsome explanation. So therefore, they're putting whatever they want into the text. And because in the Karite society, there's no concept of an oral law, there's no concept of an oral tradition, so that means that in this generation, Anan felt this way, and the next generation, Ben Meshach feels the other way, and the law will change. There's no stare decisis, there's no precedent, there's no, I'm going to keep to what was done, what came before me. This is the way the Tata did it, this is feared in the Altaheim, there's none of that. Zero. So he's going after them for this. Then everybody does whatever they want. And then he goes after, you know, what is the Karite's strong point. He says, yeah, they're not even great grammarians. Now, if there was anything that the Karites pride themselves on, was them being the best of the grammarians. He's not even impressed with that. I want to <coughs> continue for a moment. Because the Ebenezer says here, and he also says this in another book of his called the Yisod Mora. Um, the Ibn Ezra says here that there's not even one mitzvah that's fully explicated in the Torah. So what does that mean? In, in the Yisod Mora, the Ibn Ezra gives examples of what he's talking about. And he says that what we're talking about are things like Shabbos. The Torah says, You're not allowed to do any work on Shabbos. Okay. Great, fantastic. But as we know, it leads to what would seemingly be absurd results. You can walk around all day long moving furniture, carrying your couch from one end of the room to the other end of the room, rearranging and rearranging. That's not a problem in terms of Hilchah Shabbos. You're sweating. You're, you know, grunting from exertion. Great. 
That's not Chil Shabbos. But if I carry my little needle from one Rishos to another, oh, that is Chil Shabbos. That's Malacha. And the other one is not Malacha. How does that make any sense? One of the tallest of the Aves and Shabbos, none of that do you see in the in the Torah. Then, you know, just because we just came off from this holiday, he says the Torah says, by the way, I'm quoting here, not from the Ibn Ezra's introduction to Chumash, I'm quoting again from this small book that he wrote called Yisoyed Meir, Yisoyed Torah. So Ibn says, what about Sukkot? The Torah says, Basukkot is Shivas Yomim. They have to stay in a sukkah for seven days. Okay, now that's nice. What kind of a sukkah are we talking about? What is a sukkah? Oh, the fact that it has to have X amount of walls and it has to have this kind of schach, none of that's there. None of that's there at all. He also says, like, what about I know? In what way do I know? I know is a fifth of what? Doesn't say anything anywhere in the in the Chumash. We have no knowledge of what I know is at all. <coughs> Again, and both here and the Isaid Torah, in the Isaid Mara, I'm sorry, Isaid Torah, as well as in his commentary in Chumash, the Ibn Ezra goes after the Karaites for keeping to the Jewish calendar that we keep to. That is. Again, except for Shavuos and things like that, but they they're, they're they're keeping a Jewish calendar that effectively has twelve months and has um, three hundred sixty-five days. Says the Ibn Ezra, "What are you doing? Where in the Chumash does it say that the Shana that the year is three sixty-five days? Where in the Chumash do we see what the month is? The month." can be determined at a specific place within the cycle of the moon? Okay. But where did Torah did it say that? There are many possible lunar conjunctions that one could cognize as to be a place where to set the time. And maybe that time is not going to be the time that we would do today. But we just assume with the Karai tradition, there's always 12 months. There's always 365 days. Says the Ibn you're not being honest. You're not being faithful to your own inter- you know, interpretive abilities. Of course, the Karai say, well, every generation, they reiterate the same feelings about the calendar because that's what they really believe. But the Ibn said, that's not true. Either you approach the text independently and you do that all the time, which is not necessarily defensible because you're coming out with bad conclusions, says the Ibn Ezra. But okay, it's at least being consistent. But if you're going to adopt the rabbinic approach about the days and the months, right, and the years, then why not adopt the rest of it? There is nothing in the Chumash that says how long a month should be. There's nothing that says how long a year should be. That's all made up. <coughs> By the, by, by the Karaites, under their own understanding, but they're not. They're just simply accepting the Torah Shabbat Pell, these things. And this, says the Ibn Ezra, is not being fair to their own approach. One thing to, you know, maybe pointing out is 
that the Ibn Ezra was well aware that people that studied Chumash were sort of on the lower end of the totem pole, right? The people who studied the Talmud, that's more impressive. So the Ibn Ezra says, look, um, at the end of the day, if you think that you study Chumash alone, that's going to make you a big Talmud Chacham, you're wrong. If you're just studying Nach alone, the big Talmud Chacham you're going to be, no. But is it necessary for those disciplines for certain age kids? Sure. Is it necessary to understand the Torah, the Quran Torah for your own learning? Sure. But says the Ibn Ezra, don't overdo it. When it comes to studying, you know, the figures and the names and the places and the, you know, and the lists and lists of, of people and information, the Ibn Ezra doesn't find any of that necessary. It's just a waste of time. Study everything, sure. <coughs> but don't sit there trying to memorize every single judge, every single town, every single king, and how the kings of Israel and Judea lived at which time. Like, there's no need for that. The Ibn Ezra, so this is all from, really mostly from his side, Myra, which as I say, is very similar to the basic thing he was saying over here. Here in the introduction to Chumash, he doesn't bring up Shabbos, and he doesn't bring up Sukkot, he doesn't bring up Aina. <coughs> Here in the introduction to Chumash, the Ibn Ezra is very, very myopically focused on the month and on the fact that there's no way that the Karaites can do justice to their own interpretation based upon it because he tries to show that the Torah doesn't say anything about it, that you have to be fully relying on Torah Shabbat For the Ibn Ezra, as he says, the Karaites, they, Mamish, are not being consistent when it comes to the, the month of a year. The month, how many months are in a year, how many days is a month, etc. They're not being consistent. Says the Ibn Ezra, the Karaites want to quote from a, from a passage that we had in this parsha. That Hashem puts the Shnei Rakia, the Shnei Maris in the Rakia, as a Margadolim Shal Sayyim, as a Margadolim Shal Salaylo, as a Karchavim. The passage of Ayu, Laisesim, Mayad, and the Yam and Vishanim, it should be for you, for signs, for holidays, for, um, it should be the Mayad and Vishanim for years. Um, and so, so the Ibn Ezra asks, I, I don't understand. What makes you think that when the Torah says it should be for you for holidays, that what the holidays we're talking about is, is say, the Jewish holidays? There's no evidence that that's what we're talking about specifically. Even if you think that's a weak kasha, says the Ibn Ezra, fine. But, but, he says, even if we knew that it was referring to specifically Jewish festivals, we still don't know exactly when a full lunar month is. So let's say you want to use it for a festival. But what, at which conjunction are we saying that we're at a new month? Even as it points out, it can be done in 27 days, 28 days, 29 days. It could be done at various different points. The fact that we're counting a month to be, in our case, 29 or 30 days, but in, let's say in their case, um, the 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 Ibn Ezra seems to be suggesting 
Again, not that every holiday is the same. As I say, they do Shavuos differently than us. They do Shavuos always on that Sunday. But the point is, they're using a fundamental calendar that's very similar to ours. Not every holiday is exactly the same day, but it's very similar to ours because it's based upon a 12-month calendar. Says the Ibn Ezra, okay, even if you want to say the Mayad, the Mishan, all that stuff, it's a reference to Jewish holidays. <coughs> but how would you know? How would you know when that holiday really should be? If the month is different between 28 days or 30 days, that's going to be a very different day when the holiday is going to be. So they're effectively using the approach of Chazal in terms of how to set the dates. Now you might say, look, these are the Karaites of that time. They accepted whatever the calendar was that Hillel Azakin created. So maybe it's not such a strong question. But the other questions that I brought up against, you know, the Karaites, this is the same question that we've mentioned before in the Mate Dan from David Nieto, which is that it's very difficult to understand the Torah Shem It's very difficult to understand the Chumash without having Torah Shem Pet. The classic example that, you know, they, they give is, where does the Torah tell you to do Shechita? Where? There's nowhere where it says Dushki. Where does it say in the Torah what a priate's hotter is? Where does the Torah does it say what Lasas Komlacha is? Or what a suk is? The Torah is not explaining any of the stuff. So obviously that to be a pretty robust oral law, oral understanding, in order to be able to make sense of it, of what these commands are. Otherwise the commands are nonsensical. That's the basic approach of the Ibn Ezra here. And again, he's naming and shaming. This time he goes after a Karai named Yehuda the Parsi. And he says that, that uh, Yehuda the Parsi decided that calendar should really be 12 months of 30-day months. But how would he have done that without you relying on Tarsh Pet? It's Tarsh Pet that made that determination. <coughs> There's no word in that you could see it. And again, he reiterates, if you're going to rely on the rabbis for this, then rely on the rabbis for other things also. The Ibn Ezra concludes this second approach by, in a sense, lamenting, but, but pointing out that the Torah spends an inordinate amount of space on certain things. And on certain things that is literally laconic as bereft of having a very, you know, sort of loquacious dissertation about a mitzvah. So specifically, the Ibn here mentions the mitzvah of Tzaras. Right? Tzaras, the Torah goes through all this detail on the rules of Tzaras. And yet, when it comes to the situation of the various holidays, which apply to all of the Jewish people, not just to one person who's suffering from leprosy, but applies to the whole Jewish community worldwide, there, the Torah spends much less time in terms of defining various different bits that one would need to know, one would need to understand. No explanation of what a Priyatsadar is. No explanation of what a Sukh is. So, this proves for the Ibn Ezra that, and both here and again in the Yisrael in Meir, this proves for the Ibn Ezra that there was an oral law extent, and that's what everyone was relying on. So let's move on now to the to the third approach. 
So we mentioned two approaches. Now we're up to the third approach. The third approach says the Ibn Ezra is actually plain old darkness. It's not even within the circle. It's not the outside of the circle. It's not the, you know, the 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 glimmer of truth. No, there's nothing here in this third approach. He doesn't like it at all. For the Ibn Ezra, this is an anathema, this approach. This approach seeks mystical and esoteric interpretations of every little thing in the Torah. And for the Ibn Ezra, this is not a good thing. If every verse becomes a chidah and a mashal, if every verse becomes a parable, if every verse doesn't have anything to do with reality, then the Torah is not really mandating certain approaches to life, certain regulatory requirements of how one must lead one life. If everything is put into an abstract context, then you've taken away the imperative of working on mitzvahs on a daily basis like a Jew should. And it becomes an intellectual exercise that one can do without any practical bearing. For the Ibn Ezra, those that take on all the psukim and the Torah and try to find mystical and esoteric explanations, they're really beyond the pale. It's absolutely foolishness. <coughs> he doesn't want to waste even his time discussing it so much. But here the Ibn Ezra provides his rule, and it's one of his important rules of interpreting pshat. Says the Ibn Ezra, and I say it's very, very key to recall this, and we'll have to see if he himself was faithful to his rule. But says the Ibn Ezra that you only should seek a more esoteric meaning, a meaning that's more in the realm of parable. You should only seek that if there's nothing available on the pshat level. That is, first you have to seek on the pshat level because of a mikriyotim de pshutai. And if there's nothing that's possible, then you'll go to a deeper, more esoteric explanation. You first focus on the exoteric, and only then on the esoteric. Says the Ibn Ezra. Remember, the Torah was only given to those that have das. Really? Says the Ibn Ezra, the real angel that we talk about, that's with a person, the answer Torah, the answer really that angel is really their intellect. That's very much sound like a Maimonidean kind of an approach. Right? The Rambam said something similar. But again, the Ibn Ezra is providing his rule. Says the Ibn Ezra, whatever Pasek and Chumash doesn't contradict our common sense, then it should be explained at least according to its simple meaning. Mean doesn't mean that that's the only meaning. There are other meanings that are possible. It just means that if you have a Pasek Chumash that doesn't contradict the senses, then we're going to assume that that Pasek is a Mikriyot If it appalls the mind, if it's impossible, then we're going to reinterpret the Pasek. This is rule number one of Ibn Ezra's commentary. So, for example, he talks here about the bris, like a bris milah, circumcision. Right, that obviously is a good example to take literally because that's what we do literally. But obviously, 
that only works for Adam, it doesn't work for Chava. Now, admittedly, the 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 reality is that says the Ibn Ezra that you can go seek an esoteric meaning if you don't have anything available on the shot level. So, for example, when it comes to a bris, a bris basar is understood on a literal level. What about a bris for our last avavchem? A bris for the uncircumcised heart? Umaltem es our last avavchem. What does that mean? You're supposed to give a bris to your heart? That obviously needs to be understood on a more esoteric level. Why is that so obvious? Versus a regular bris mila, which is understood on a shot level? Again, for the Ibn Ezra, because of the fact that one could survive a bris mila, then it doesn't go against the heart, it doesn't go against the mind. So then, we do it literally. But, if one was to have open heart surgery for every person born, um, (coughs) which meant certainly certain death in those times, then, Obviously, it can't be understood literally. It needs to be understood in a more allegorical, mystical kind of explanation. This is the first rule of Ibn Ezra's uh, shot approach, which he will put into good use many a time. He concludes this section of the third type of approach by saying that even Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden, i.e., the story in this week's Sedra, can be understood literally. Even though it has a deeper meaning, it can be understood literally. This is the approach of the Ibn Ezra for the, the, the third approach that the Ibn Ezra brings down. Here's a fourth approach of the Ibn Ezra, which he acknowledges is close to the dot. That is, it's not 100% true, but it's pretty close. And he says this is the path of the rabbis in Rome, in Italy, in in Greece. What do they do? They rely on Chazal. They rely on Midrashic exegesis. And they also don't have very verbose commentaries. For the Ibn Ezra, it's very clear that pen and paper were very valuable. He does not appreciate a verbose commentary. So what these attempt... And this fourth approach, what these guys attempt to do, these rabbis, is to essentially take with the midrashim and distill them out, but not to do so by just repeating them or wasting your pen and ink on talking, you know, ad nauseum for no reason. He says, look, at the end of the day, there are certain midrashim that have a, of a very deep level. Sure. But not every midrash is like that. It says the midrashim, many midrashim are just there to, you know, keep people awake. It's just been a, a long day of studying. And they make some matter, so they make a, 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 a they make an agarata, they make a midrash just to lighten the mood. Right, the famous midrash of Rabbi Kiva getting up and asking everybody why was Esther Zeicha, right, to 127 countries. Uh, and he tried to make a joke. It's like a pretty poor joke. But uh, right, his answer is because sorry made it live to 127 years. I mean, person don't find it very funny, 
But the uh, the Gemara, the, the manager says that Rabbi Kiva saw that being a shamelis nabnim that Rabbi Kiva was talking, and the people were being very spaced out. They were basically sleeping during the speech. So this was the joke that he said. I don't think this joke would wake me up, to be honest. But but that's what it seems it, it did for people in those days. I always am blown away, by the way, on this matter. It's like, how could it be that people would sleep in Rabbi Kiva's shear? Like, wouldn't you be blown away? Like, how could you possibly sleep? But you can get used to anything, even Rabbi Akiva. So according to this fourth approach, which is very close to the dot, but not at the dot 100%, it's close. What the Ibn Ezra is saying is that there is a value here to relying on the words of Chazal. But you have to do it with a with a clear eye. You have to do it with, with thought. You can't just rely on everything and just accept it all hook, line, and zinger as being all literal and, 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 and very clearly so. Says the Ibn Ezra, that's not true. He brings down the matters that the world was created um, you know, 6,000 years ago. But before that, the Torah was created 2,000 years before that. So the Ibn Rajah, unlike the Ramban in this week's century, who says that there could have been 24-hour days even before the advent of the sun and the moon, the Ibn Rajah says that there was no time before the sun and the moon. You couldn't count it in that way. In other words, yes, the Torah says, but you couldn't count it without having the proper modalities of counting. Obviously, there was nobody there to count. Right? Nobody was yet created. But, but, the, the, what, what the Ibn Ezra is basically making the argument is, is that to say, as this measure does, that the world was created 2,000 years ago, is a nice measure. But what are you basing it on? There was no time before the sun and the moon. So the first few days are simply existing outside of a normative time. Not like the Ramban, who says it's all 24 hours even without the sun and the moon. The Ibn Ezra says not that way. <coughs> the Ibn Ezra, as I say, is keen on the commentaries that use midrashim. He's fine with that, but he says you got to you got to do it smartly. Some midrashim are there to make jokes. Some midrashim are there to give somebody pause, a respite after learning all day. He says the Ibn Ezra. Anybody could write a midrash. <coughs> There's no limitations on writing midrashim. Anybody could write a midrash. And some midrashim are cute. Some midrashim are some things you should tell your kids and help raise them. For example, he says, the bays in Bereshus. Why does the Torah start with a bays? Oh, one answer is because it means blessing, bracha. Another answer is um, that uh, Bereshus means that anything that's created will always have two. Hashem is the only willing that's one. But anything that's within space and time will always be a multiple. So that's why it starts with a bays. Um, for the, for the, again, for the Ibn Ezra, the idea that a medrash is always saying over pshat is, is absolutely not true. A medrash can say over pshat, in which case the medrash should be used. But many times the medrash have a different agenda. They're not really there to do exegesis on the pasuk. They're there to entertain. They're there to babysit. The, the medrash are being put in to help with kids. To help wake people up in the share. But they're not like fundamental. Midrashim. To Pshat. These Midrashim are not fundamental to understanding how to read a Pasuk. So that now covers the 
the fourth approach. And what I want to do now is um, is discuss the final approach, which of course for the Ibn Ezra is the only real, fully, truly uh, good approach. That's his own. That's the fifth approach. Says the Ibn Ezra, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to ascertain the meaning of each and every word. So there's an aspect here of the Ibn Ezra that's uh, going to be very much into the grammar, which in the Yusayid Mayram, the Ibn Ezra is very strongly pro people studying grammar because not everybody does. People don't study grammar. They waste their time on doing other things. They don't think grammar is important. The Ibn Ezra himself doesn't want to use the studies of the Masoretes, right? The the Chachmei Masora, right? The Ben Asher, that whole um, late eight nine hundreds, living in the land of Israel in the north, where they produced what we call today the Aleppo Codex. These people, for the Ibn Ezra, are providing midrashic explanations as to why that some words are Malay and Chasser and creating sieves and all of that. So, for the Ibn Ezra, people who don't study the Masora, that's not something that's going to get his art because he himself doesn't use the Masora. But, for people who don't want to study the Masorah, they don't study grammar, they don't do any of this, then they should understand that there is a value into knowing um, how to read correctly with like good grammar. That being said, he understands that clearly in his days there was a tendency to want to only study Talmud. <coughs> So he says it's really not right for somebody to just be a Chacham in Mikra and not to study, um, uh, you know, and just to study Talmud alone and not and not Chumash. So he says, Kikashi Matzi B'Talmud Kosov Whenever the Torah is going to come along and say the word Shinemar, Lo Yoda Be'ezu Sefer, right? They're not going to know. There's someone not going to know where the, which book this pasuk is from. They won't know if the pasuk the Gemara is bringing is really a drash, is really an asmachta. They they won't simply know. Right? They simply will not know. Because these are great scholars. They're producing lots of great material, he says. He says, look, at the end of the day, you can be a great scholar. If you don't know Chumash, you won't even know how to read a Pasuk. You won't know how to understand the basis of what the Gemara is trying to do. And he says, so therefore, everybody who's a scholar has to know. Grammar has to know. Degas Halashin. Otherwise, Kerry says, really learn Talmud even. You have to know how to read a Pasuk Chumash. You have to know the basics. But at the same time, he also told us before that a person shouldn't spend their, you know, their time just studying 
you know, on the on the on the chumash, you have to know the ma'aseh mitzvah. You have to know the mission, the Talmud. You have to know other things as well. So here's the Ibn Ezra on the fifth approach, which again, as I say, is the correct approach for him. It's his own approach. He won't study the masterites. He won't bring them up. The Chachmim saw in his commentary. Then he says, Ongelus is really an unbelievable commentary. Ongelus really translates with so much perfection that it's just wonderful. He's a great friend. He's like effectively a friend and a helper. Because Ongelus is giving to you everything on a silver platter. Says the Ibn Ezra, it is true that Ongelus leaves shot many times. But he says there's always a reason for it. And the reason he wants to posit now is because of the fact that Unglos is trying to, again for the Ibn Ezra, what Unglos is trying to do is basically offer a deeper understandings of a Pusik, but only if that Pusik is perfectly understood. If that puzzle is not perfectly understood, then he won't go off off topic. He'll just translate as best as he could, as close to literal as possible. So that is, according to the way that Ibn Ezra is writing it, the reality is Uncle is a fantastic translation. He is the mitargim. However, at times, Uncle deviates from shot, but Ibn Ezra thinks that the reason for that is because not that Ungulus is consciously deviating from Pshat to change something serious. It's just that everyone understood the Pshat and he was adding in another dimension. You could have said differently. Right? You could have said that, and by the way, this just sounds like this, the Rambam and Boyan Vukh, right? That also glorified Ungulus as a commentary because of the fact that. He was able to, um, for the Rambam, deliberately mistranslate any anthropomorphic words into something that would be more palatable theologically. (coughs) But, says me, that you could have said, well, Onkelos might be deviating from the Pshat, not just for anthropomorphic reasons, and not just because it's so simply understood, but... He could be doing it because he also has proto-Karites or in his days, Suduki, that he has to worry about. And so he's attempting to make a translation that no one can challenge. But Uncle's is trying to make a, 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 a translation that no one is going to come along and say, oh, well, this doesn't work. Right? He's trying to make a translation that's going to last. And the way it's going to last is if he, at time to time, takes in the words of Chazal over and above. But it may very well have been that he was doing this Ongelus because of the fact that he was dealing with indigenous Tzedukim, whatever it was in his day and age, similar to Karites. It's unclear. All we see is that the Ibn Ezra is very, very sure that if Ongelus is leaving Pashup Shat, it's because of the fact that the Pashup Shat was so well understood that Ongelus could afford to do so and give you additional layers of meaning. To me, that doesn't seem very convincing. I think the other reasons that I just offered for why Uncleus 
sometimes deviates or very often deviates from just simply translating is either because of the fact that he had some sort of, uh, you know, uh, a rear guard action. He had some sort of move at his flank that Stukum were coming, so he tried to get around that, right? Or because he had an agenda, he had an agenda to try to translate as much as he could lahalacha wherever possible. Those are what I think, you know, possibly could be other reasons for almost is what he did. And then he concludes the Ibn Ezra and he says like this, look, at the end of the day, I don't always do shot myself, says the Ibn Ezra, but you should know that Torah has 70 faces. Right? Shiv and bottom of Torah. And for the Ibn Ezra, that means then that shot is just one of those. It's a it's a whole menu. It's a smorgasbord of different approaches. For the Ibn Ezra, it is very clear that shot does not go away for drash. Shot doesn't lie down on the ground because Josh is running all over it. No. Josh has its day, has its time, so does Pshat. And this, I think, is sort of a basic um, introduction to the approach of the Ibn Ezra, where again, he's got to be focused very much on Pshat. He's got to bring in other things about astrology. He's got to have certain opinions on grammar, as we pointed out, he thinks grammar is very important. Can't really be real Tabakhacham without it. And as much as he likes Pshat, and as much as he's gonna show strong fealty to Pshat, if something doesn't work on Peep Shudeshal Mikram, he will switch off it. He will adopt various different Midrashic or other approaches. This is the the basic understanding of the Ibanez. So now that we went through the introduction we don't really have time to go through Bereshis. I've done this before in, in previous years. What we'll do is as we go along through the year, we'll try to bring back examples from Bereshis that are relevant. Although tonight we did mention a few. We'll look for more as we go along during the year. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you. Thank you.